evening, I'm Derek Fildebrand, publisher of the Western Standard, and you're watching The Pipeline. Today is July 19th, 2023. I'm joined, as usual, by Western Standard opinion editor, Nigel Hannaford. You have a good uh, good stampede? Excellent one, actually, yes. Back, back in our suits. Back in our suits, yes. Back, back in a suit. The other stuff is all back to the dry cleaners now. Yeah, yeah. Put, put it away in the closet for a while. Well, yeah, that's right. Get it. Get all the muck off the off the bottoms of the jeans and so on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, out of his uh, cowboy kit, back into a suit is uh, Western Standard uh, Senior Alberta columnist Corey Morgan, who appears to need a haircut pretty bad today. Yeah, one oh, thing at a time. I'm due for one. I yeah. Procrastination. Uh, we, did, we could sit under a hat there for two weeks, I guess. Yeah, well, I hid it last week under the cowboy hat, but no luck. Were you guys wearing hats on the show last week? I did. Oh. Well, good for you guys. Did you guys all watch it? Uh, I always watch it if I'm not on it. If I'm not on it, it's not even worth watching, isn't it? Eh? I should have been less restrained if I had known he wasn't going to watch. <laughs> uh, yeah. Joke's on you. Uh, today we're going to be talking, um, I, I don't know what it is about governor generals. You get appointed governor general and something goes to your brain and you get the governor general credit card and you just use it everywhere. And on the most outrageously expensive stuff possible. Uh, so <coughs> the latest Governor General Simons is in trouble. Uh, Simons, right? That's how you say it? Simon. Simon. Mary Simon. 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 Mm -hmm. Mary Simon. Her Excellency. Uh, Her Excellency, the Right Honorable. I think they get that. Uh, mm -hmm. Those. Uh, Her Her Highnessness, uh, Mary Simon, uh, spent a hair under $300,000 on an uh, oh, no, that was trip total. Uh, $71,000 on an ice limo in uh, in Iceland. Uh, so just kind of the latest spending scandal from governor generals. This is the same governor general that spent $700,000 to receive some kind of award at a book fair, uh, some kind of book fair thingy in Germany uh, just a few years ago, coming on the heels of Julie Payette who had her own, uh, virtually every governor general ever. Uh, the bills were astronomical. Yeah. Uh, so just wild stuff. So we're going to be talking about that. I mean, what the hell the problem is with our governor generals? <clears throat> Poss one possible exception, David Johnson, all following, falling into the same damn scandal every damn time. The BC port strike, uh, the longshoremen are back on strike again. A hugely economically disruptive um, it's uh, necessitated a recalling of Parliament now. <laughs> um, it could go a couple different ways. The uh, uh, federal labor minister, Seamus O'Regan, has said it's an illegal strike. Tough words coming from a liberal, you know, especially one in an effective coalition with the NDP. Uh, so this has been just hugely disruptive uh, economically, and the strike is back on again, and arguably an illegal strike because they did not give uh, 72 hours notice as they're normally supposed to this one straight back to strike uh federal environment and climate change and the minister responsible for climate change see i told you it was all his fault global mm -hmm. warming is Stephen gilbo's fault uh he um well we've got an interesting piece from our uh, business reporter sean polzer who, uh, kind of an exclusive scoop where gilbo has opened the door potentially uh to allowing Canadian exports of light natural gas to uh, be counted as Canadian emission reductions. And so far, the Liberals have been very much opposed to that. All of a sudden, maybe he's a bit more open. Maybe the Liberals figuring out that 
there's a zero percent chance of Canada meeting its Paris Climate Accord uh, so-called commitments without uh, playing with this Article 16. So we're going to dive into that with our uh, business reporter, Sean Pulser. Sean was also going to be with us, though, um, for a story he had. TD Bank says that Canada's standard of living is falling fast. In fact, we're projected to have the lowest economic growth of every single country in the OECD. Or is it? Yeah, OECD. Yeah, OECD. Yeah. Uh, I always mix it up with obsessive compulsive uh, disorder. Yeah, it's just the OCD. Yeah, yeah I, I, I mix it up all the time. Uh, we're going to have the uh, bottom of the pack, uh, 36th or 38th, whatever it is, dead last by in the next 30 years. Uh, harrowing, harrowing economic news. Uh, before we get going, though, we got to thank my favorite sponsor, the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. I've been a member of the CSSA for more than a decade because uh, I trust them as Canada's leading firearms rights organization. These guys have been fighting for your right to responsibly and safely own, purchase, and use firearms in Canada. Uh, firearms owners need to stand together. If we don't stand together, uh, Ottawa's going to have a much, much easier time than it already does in taking away our rightful property. Uh, if you're a gun owner in Canada, you don't freeload on the work of others who are paying their weight. You need to join in, uh, become a member of the CSSA. Go to cssa-cila.org right now, or do what I and Corey do. Just Google them and become a member uh, and stand together with other firearms owners in Canada. Okay, so uh, why do governor generals spend so royally? Um uh, even some governor generals that are thought, you know, remembered somewhat fondly, they've all, with you know, one exception, that's why we have an asterisk on the title of this one, they all fall into this. Now, I think sometimes uh, Canadians can get a little nitpicky on spending scandals. You know, uh, we were chatting about this uh, this morning, the Bevoda orange juice uh, scandal. What was it? Eight, ten, or twelve dollars, whatever it was, or eighteen dollars. I don't know. She had this very expensive. Wildly expensive glass of orange juice, but she was at a conference at a swanky hotel, and sometimes these hotels just, they bilk you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and what are you going to do? Are you going to tell the minister you can't have a drink with your breakfast? You're stuck at this hotel. Canadians get a little nitpicky about this stuff sometimes, uh, but sometimes it's rightful, and governor generals seem to do this all the time. Again, exception, uh, at least that I can remember in my lifetime, David Johnson didn't seem to have it, but all our governor generals seem to fall into this. Uh, uh, I guess but maybe let's just start with this particular spending, governor general spending scandal before we get into maybe more historically. Um, $71,000 for the ICE limo. Uh, she could have bought a BMW and just left it in Iceland, and it still would have saved the taxpayers' money relative to this. Or she could have bought, uh, she, if she was really insistent on a limo, she could have bought a Dodge or Lincoln limo of uh, 2012 and 2013 models. Um, are we just being too nitpicky on this one, uh, Nigel? Is this another Bev Oda orange juice thing that we're blowing out of proportion? Or does the Governor General really have something serious to answer for here? Well, yes, I think she does. Um, there's two things to it. First of all is the actual expense on the limousine. She had the thing locked up for three days. So it was available for 72 hours. And she was only 700 meters away. The hotel and the conference center were 700 meters away. Could yeah, walk well, it. Well, I mean, we don't expect, frankly, we don't expect no. her to walk it. But uh, no. at the same time, somebody made the decision that that vehicle was to just be there 
for the whole time. And, and I can see how they would have come to that conclusion. But sometimes they come to the wrong conclusion. And you know she's not going to need it at 3 o'clock in the morning, so send the guy home. I don't know. If I'm governor general and I'm on an all-expenses-paid uh, trip to Iceland uh, this time of year, yeah, I, 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 I might need the ice limo at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning. Well, you might, but I don't think Mary Simon, uh, you know, go out and see a geezer at three o'clock in the morning. No, look, I mean, the, the thing with the, there are those specific expenses. And I got to say, on behalf of advanced tour directors for the government, that sometimes your choices are very constricted. You, you know, you're going to go to a certain place. Well, the host government wants you to say, in certain designated hotels. And there are reasons for that. It's got to yeah. do with security and access and all sort of thing. So, you know, if that hotel turns out to be charging uh, $3,000 a night, then that's where you stay. And then you take the heat when you come home. The other question, though, is why she's going there and for what purpose? This was a meeting of the so-called Arctic Council. When she I got think it was there, Arctic Circle Assembly. Arctic Circle Assembly. So what, when she got there, what was she talking about? Well, it, she was talking about um, gender equality, youth engagement, and the revitalization of indigenous knowledges and cultures. I would put it to you that maybe it wasn't worth going to Iceland to drive those messages on behalf of Canada. Same with... But then how else is she going to get a free trip to Iceland? Well, she may just have to buy her own. You know what? And then there's the Frankfurt Book Fair. Now, here we were going to receive a, a nationally an award. It turns out we paid for everything. We paid for the trip. We paid for the award. We paid for the banquet. $18 million squandered on a Frankfurt Book Fair. Uh, 700000 for her, though, I think. Well, yeah, but altogether, why are, we, why are we doing this? Like, what's the payoff? As for her, she, she what did it say here? She went to tell delegates... Our story is not just about him or her, it's also about they or them. Oh, you can't make this profound. stuff up. You know, like, maybe don't go to some of these things and or send somebody else who doesn't get the, the royal treatment and save the money. It's, it, it is, as if you're going to go, your hands are tied to a large extent, so maybe make the decision not to attend. Uh Corey, you know, it's the same. Sometimes, I th I'm not sure if it's uniquely Canadian, but you don't see this kind of thing in the States where, you know, uh, people get upset when, you know, politicians run up a big bill for something. Like, we, again, I, I guess I keep coming back to this, the bed of orange juice. It took down a cabinet minister, a single glass of orange juice that was somewhere between 8 and 18 bucks, I can't recall. But, yeah, Canadians... I think at least semi-uniquely get really upset about this stuff, and sometimes it's petty and unfounded. But this stuff is just off the real $71,000 for an ice limo. Her total trip, $298,000, essentially three hundred dollars uh, cool. Um, she, if they needed a car in standby, they literally could have bought a, a pretty nice BMW and just left it and donated it to charity when they left, and it was still would have been cheaper. How the hell does something like this happen? I, I, I feel like, before you answer, I feel like, you know, it's not likely that the governor general uh, was sitting around Rideau Hall and she says, get me an ice limo for three days, keep it outside running, and I don't care how much it costs it. I, I doubt 
that's what happened. But it did happen. And it seems to happen with our governor generals all the time. How the hell do you think this happened? Well, I think with these governor generals, I mean, they're a position of faux royalty. They're appointed to it, but they are supposed to be representatives of the queen or king now. And the amount, it goes to their head fast. You, you stay in a, a, a separate, you know, Rideau Hall, which is almost a, a palace in itself. You've got the servants around you. Uh, even having a lieutenant governor uh, come out to an event in Pritis that Jane was working on actually years ago. The, the protocol that you get sent to you on how you deal with somebody in that position and, and, and even, you know, walking behind, it goes to their head quickly. And I think they, they start to believe they are royalty. So you guys hosted uh, Representative the Queen and Prentice. Well, there was a time capsule opening from uh, that had been set there by Grant McEwen many years ago. And, mm. and uh, we actually asked and she came out, which was an honor. It was great to mm -hmm. see. Did you let her use uh, the washroom at the bar? Oh, come on. She's not that royal. <laughs> so, uh, it's, uh, but I mean, it really was actually quite a list of things that were sent in advance about how you, you deal with the protocols of having somebody and that's at the provincial level. So I, I, I believe they, they lose sight though of, you know what, it, it, it's, there's limits. You aren't really a queen or king. You are still a government appointed person. But you're representing. But, and I think the, some of them, the like uh, Payette was worse, I think, but haven't helped the staffer if there wasn't a comfortable enough level when you did get there or you know the the advanced person or planner if there wasn't a, a big enough room or a large enough entourage or, or as we know with the flights with this governor general there'd better be at least a hundred thousand dollars worth of food for my friends so you know we have a i think a good reason to be upset and in times like now when the cost of living is spiking we get extra upset. If times were good and the economy's booming, people might not pay attention. But when you're starting to pinch nickels and clip coupons and you see somebody, uh, you know, so wantonly spending your tax dollars like that, who's in a position that really doesn't necessarily do a lot, we're going to get mad. You mean you never charge $600 for a steak down there when you were If I'd have thought somebody would buy it, I would yeah, have been more than happy to sell it. You should have done rate. it when the but, lieutenant uh, governor came through. Yes. Uh, again, I, I don't think we've had that problem so much on the provincial level though man i should be the lieutenant governor it'll be lit yeah at least i'll have good parties and people come to them true enough and you know i, I could cut the steak price down to 200 dollars for uh, the visit you know reasonable yeah. yeah i i'm not sure how we fix this and it's probably more difficult to fix than the average canadian taxpayer would suppose because the governor general is not actually a part of the government as we think about it. It's a different branch of government. There's the judiciary and there is the legislature and then there is the executive. We kind of have a fourth branch in our system more or less and that is the monarchy. Now the monarchy is paid for, at least the governor general portion, not, not the queen herself, but in Canada that's paid for by an act of parliament. Parliament authorizes the money to be spent but I'm not sure how much they can micromanage it. Like, I'm not sure if Parliament can, you know, appoint special person to be in charge and check the, you know, the invoices coming into the Governor General's office and say, eh, I don't know about this. I'm going to go tell Trudeau that uh, you're going to get us some crap here. So the th here's the thing. There's one reason to have the monarchy and uh, <clears throat> have the Governor General, and that is when there's a constitutional crisis, they are the arbiter. They can also do certain other things like hand out um, medals for valor or for civic performance. But that's why we have the office. 
It is not so that they be, can become an international representative for Canada. Now that's how it's been chosen to interpret it recently. But the idea that we have a governor general so that we can send them to book fairs in Frankfurt or to gatherings of, uh, of people in Iceland oh. and some of the other crazy things that Adrian Clarkson used to go to, it's not, it's not a job. That's not why we have them. I don't we, know. I mean, like... We the, would never invent it. The hollow head of state, you know, uh, Canada, Germany, Israel, uh, countries that, uh, you know, in their cases, it's presidents, but they're not like a president in the American or the French sense. Mm -hmm. They have... Mm -hmm. They're essentially like a governor general. They're a referee for a constitutional crisis. That's it. Um, countries with these kind of uh, powerless heads of state... They do tend to utilize them for diplomatic functions. You know, Germany and Israel will send their president somewhere if they feel, ah, oh, we need to show the flag, but yeah, we're not sending the prime minister or the chancellor. We're not sending the foreign affairs minister or secretary. Uh, this is done. And, well, and, and the queen herself does play a diplomatic role. The queen does travel. Certainly she does. And but she was suited. the queen. You know, she yes. wasn't the, the two-dimensional uh, cardboard cutout. The queen. queen isn't appointed by parliament. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a whole different uh, ballpark. No, no, but she, she is used beyond her strict constitutional role as a referee. She does, uh, well, I'm still talking about her like she's alive. I actually I was thinking about her like she was alive for a moment. Uh, hard to get out. I mean, just been around. Only in many years, yeah, Derek. Don't, yeah. don't blame yourself. But, I mean, like, King Charles will certainly be sent out playing a diplomatic function. The whole royal family is sent out playing a diplomatic function. I, I, I don't know if it's reasonable to say, you know, we shouldn't have the governor general doing that. But it's just got to be within reason. And this, this stuff just keeps bloody happening. It isn't within reason. That's and I don't know. Is there any way to stop this short of... I, I don't see why a budget can't be set. I mean, I know the role is constitutionally entrenched. But like anything else, you can set a budget. You can set some broad expectations but, uh, on what the role is. This could still happen within a budget. I mean, I can see, okay... Uh, Canada's more or less head of state-ish, representative of the mm -hmm. head of state goes to Iceland. I can see, okay, fine, $300,000, you know, hotels, food, security, all this stuff. That's the budget. That you're, doesn't you're, stop some person on, in, in the entourage of the governor general saying, let's get the Iceland home. Well, and I mean, that's you can't a, stop if that. they realize that if it's let's get the ice limb, okay, but now you can't afford the book fair. I'm talking about a hard budget. This is your travel budget for the year. Yeah. Figure out which things you're going to attend this year because once that's out, you, you're going to have to apply for anything further or, or something like that. It's not impossible to do to yeah. rein them in. And it's, it is also possible to remind the people on the ground who make these actual decisions to commit to something like an ice limo whose money it is they're spending. Come on, guys. You know, I, 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 it also might just have something to do with who we're appointing. David Johnson was, uh, Stephen Harper was criticized for the appointment of David Johnson because he was a boring old white man. He didn't check any boxes other than accomplishment and credibility. Uh, something even the liberals have <laughs> recently conceded he did have uh, until he was put in a role he shouldn't have had, but... Uh, but the liberals have, I think, exclusively, uh, at least under Trudeau, only ever, actually, and going back, Paul Martin and Kretchen, they appoint tokens. And I don't mean to take away from these people. Uh, they've all accomplished something, uh, more than us in many cases. But, you know, it's they're checking diversity boxes, not 
for the most part, great accomplishments. And I don't know, maybe that has something to do with it so that when they, when they get there, they're overwhelmed. Many of them have just never had real response. David Johnson had real responsibility mm -hmm. in his career. He got to the governor general's office. Okay, it's more responsibility, but it doesn't necessarily overwhelm them because it's another rung up on the ladder where some of these people, um, like uh, Michelle... Um, Jean. Michael Jean. Mm -hmm. She was just the CBC uh, Radio Canada reporter, and all of a sudden she's the governor general. Well, how do you expect her not to go crazy? Well, I guess she was recommended by Adrian Clarkson, who has also been a CBC. Look, there's something in that too, by the way, that the corporate culture within the CBC is not parsimonious. I mean, they have expense accounts, and they, they use them. So if that is the if that's the milieu in which you have uh, worked for decades, and then they make a governor general and say, by the way, is there an expense account? Oh yeah, you won't be short. They just carry on doing what they've always been doing. I think that that was uh, probably not Julie Julie Payette's problem. I think she'd just like to spend money. But uh, with the but uh, those two governors general, and, uh, and now. Um, Mary Simon, not out of the CBC, not out of a spending culture, but my father had a had a sort of a word of advice for young men contemplating marriage. You'll never satisfy a woman who is accustomed to nothing. And I think that, uh, you know, with the career path that Mary Simon has followed, she's never had it so good. Getting advice from Nigel. All right, uh, we're gonna turn it to the West. <laughs> We're going to turn it to the West Coast here. Um, so the longshoremen uh, working the BC ports on strike. Uh, tremendous economic cost to this. Um, they had, I guess, kind of uh, union solidarity stuff where shipments diverted to the states. The longshoremen there would not unload it. So this was just blocking trade to and from the West Coast of Canada. Hugely disruptive. They come to a deal. Uh, strike is over, and yesterday evening, it's back on. Uh, union rejects the deal and immediately goes back to strike. Uh, Federal Labor Minister Seamus O'Regan says it's an illegal strike because they didn't give enough notice. Now, they have given notice now, but they've already been out there doing it. Parliament's uh, being recalled. Uh, I'm supposed to meet with an MP soon. Uh, can't really happen now because they're all heading back to Ottawa. Um, I guess we'll talk, it's obvious how, how destructive it is. Maybe we'll talk more about the politics of it. Um, this is going to really put, I think, some strain on the Liberals' quasi-coalition agreement with the NDP. Union dock workers in British Columbia. I mean, if the NDP can't get those guys on side, they're done. You know, that's supposed to be bread and butter. Uh, those kinds of voters actually kind of go between conservative and NDP, kind of skip the liberal in the middle there. But um, the NDP have been adamantly opposed to any back-to-work legislation. Um, this could take a, a, a few potential forms, but Parliament's coming back. That probably means back-to-work legislation. And, I, and the union gave Ottawa, especially the liberals, which you know are keenly aware of the politics around this, gave them the excuse by engaging in what they've described, characterized as a illegal strike, wildcat strike. Um, if we get back to work legislation, do you think, uh, we'll start with you, Corey, are the Liberals going to be able to kind of square it in a way that they can get the NDP support to support them? Or 
Is this going to be a one-time deal where they actually have to cut a deal with the conservatives? Well, I think in this case, the conservatives would support back-to-work legislation so the NDP can vote on principle against it. But it still weakens Singh every time he yaps on the sidelines saying, I'm going to hold Trudeau accountable to this and to this and to this, when he's been the linchpin of that government for quite some time now. He, he can't keep rolling over for the Liberals. I mean, this would be actually a voting against circumstance, but it won't be a confidence thing and it'll pass. But he's, his own base of support's got to be getting tired of this. I mean, at what point are you actually going to be the democratic socialists you claim you are and uh, say, that's enough. We, we have to um, start voting against this government. So it'll put a lot of pressure on. Nigel, if you're, um, okay, you're, you're Justin Trudeau, how are you trying to sell this to the conservatives? Because, you know, they're the official opposition. They're leading in the polls. They're the threat to take your job as prime minister. How are you packaging in this, uh, packaging this in a way that can allow the conservative for but both force the conservatives to support it and allow the conservatives to claim a win in their own right because they, they're always beaten up on Jade Meat Singh as being uh, Tweedledum to Trudeau's Tweedledee. Oh no, maybe the other way around. Uh, yeah, he's Tweedledee to Trudeau's Tweedledum. Um, they don't like to be seen voting with the liberals, and it's normal for an official opposition. How, how would you sell this uh, if you're Trudeau in a way that gets the conservatives to feel comfortable voting for back-to-work legislation for the... For the uh, well, first of all, they're never going to feel comfortable. What they, uh, all that they can really do is say that they recognize the enormous economic importance of that port and the trade that goes through it to the Canadian economy and that they're above playing party politics. Uh, with with such a matter of national importance. And although Mr. Trudeau is the architect of his own misfortune and and deserves to no longer be prime minister in order to get the country moving again, I guess we can hold our nose and do this once. Now, I can't imagine. The thing is, it goes against the, um, the conservative way of looking at life to let the unions win on this. I mean, what would the what would the conservatives do if the, they were the ones in office right now? Well, you bet they'd be fighting this tooth and nail, and they mm-hmm. would take every action necessary to bring that port back into operation. So, I they really don't have much option, and they would then reserve the most of their contempt for the NDP, where it would be well placed, I must say. Our, um, uh, do we have uh, Sean standing by here? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're we're going to switch it up now. We're going to bring Sean Polzer in, uh, Western Standard. Oh. Okay. All right. We're going to switch gears again here. We're going to bring in uh, Western Standard business reporter, Sean Polzer. Uh, Sean, um, you had a very, very interesting story. Uh, I think it was yesterday. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Federal Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo. Um his office, well, they told you something interesting. Uh, maybe he's seeing the light, if you get my bad uh, dad pun here. Um, uh, so far, Gilbo has been uh, sort of the arch enemy of the oil and gas industry, probably more or less still is, but he is probably keenly aware that his legacy as a green activist rests on Canada meeting its greenhouse gas emission targets. And uh, this... Uh, Canada's liquid LNG industry might be a part of it. Uh, tell us about uh, what their office told you. Well, 
Um, he had a press uh, conference uh, via Zoom from Belgium last week, uh, sensibly to lay the groundwork for the COP28 uh, conference that's coming up in November. And uh, one of the issues that's going to be on it is this uh, Article 6 from the Paris Accord. And um, so I, I got cut off on the on the press release. I didn't take my question and I, did, I wasn't exactly sure why. So I followed up uh, by email and basically just asked, uh, you know, do you support the notion of uh, using LNG to reduce emissions in other countries uh, abroad, you know, that uh, burn coal? For electricity, um, the way that uh, Premier Daniel Smith has been uh, suggesting all along, and uh, you know, we had a little bit of back and forth, and you know, they promised me that they were going to give me um, a substantial response, and on Tuesday they did, and it was uh, pleasantly surprising. You know, the, the the government said that yes, there is a role for. Uh, not LNG specifically, but for Article 6 to help other countries reduce um, emissions and while doing so, we'll reduce our own. So, uh, I've, I've, you know, progress is measured in small steps. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I thought that that was uh, fairly somewhat positive. Um, we'll start with you, Corey. Um, I mean, it's it's a very small step and it's Still just words in an email from his office. We haven't heard it come from his lips yet. I'm sure he would he'd be gritting his teeth while speaking it that Canada's LNG industry might have some role. We, we, we got to expand the industries to export because it actually will reduce greenhouse gas emissions. This is something that the hardcore green activists just refuse to admit, but it is factually established. There's no way around it. It's better... From a greenhouse gas emissions perspective, if Canada, Alberta exports LNG to another country that was burning coal, we get them then burning uh, LNG, which is, you know, much, much uh, less in, uh, in emissions. Uh, but to hear them admit it now, this is something that Daniel Smith has been talking about. Scott Moe has been talking about. Pierre Polyev has been talking about. And hearing it come from Stephen Gilbo's office, that surprises the hell out of me. Is, what do you think? Is this just that they're like, eh, no matter how much we strangle the industry, it's still not going to be enough to meet our targets. And I want to be remembered as the environment minister that got us to meet the targets. So whatever we have to do to meet the targets, uh, even if it grudgingly helps Alberta and LNG, we're going to do. Uh, what do you think might well, account for this change? Maybe it gives them room to frame it and still being the environmental crusaders because the pragmatists in the liberal government, the economists, the, the, the business people, and they're there they do have to realize some of the benefits of uh, liquid natural gas exports. I mean, this is a government that's got some serious budgetary shortcomings and some, some widening deficits, and this provides opportunity to bring that in. So if they can frame that in that way, spin it that way, again, maybe not out of an ideologue like Gilbo, but his own office at least, are realizing, let, let's make an out here and uh, you know try to, to walk that fine line between saving the world from emissions and still managing to bring in some revenue. Um You'll probably remember, uh, famously recall when uh, so you'll, you'll recall when Trudeau famously told uh, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz that there was no business case for Canada to export LNG to Germany because uh, you know, Trudeau apparently understands business. Uh, this happened with another country too that came here Japan. asking. Was it Japan, yeah, Japan came asking for LNG. We told them to take a hike as well, and well, they got it from uh, somewhere uh, from the United States that time. 
they've under they've not understood that LNG is a remarkably clean fossil fuel. Um, but it is a change. Do you think this is just merely, I don't know, because they're talking to the business supporter of the Western Standard, they spruce, spruce something up, or is there? Do you think there's actually something here? Well, I think because uh, this would be, this would constitute <clears throat> a major change in policy. Mm-hmm. I think it's very interesting the way they roll it out. Right now, the minister himself is not committed to anything. His office can say that, and it is very carefully parsed as well. Mm-hmm. But you know, if he decides that no, not going to do that. All he has to say was, well, there was a briefing paper that was uh, inappropriately put out, and uh, this doesn't mean a thing, and our position remains what it always has been. It did make me wonder whether there was something in this in terms of the relationship between Ottawa and the government of Alberta, because... This was a big thing Smith was on about while uh, while he was here. Yeah, exactly. So the the hint that they may give a little on that strikes me as possibly a negotiating tactic. But one, as I say, that they can easily walk away from. Oh, well, that was just a lower-level official who said that. Doesn't commit the government. Mm. But, um, you know, the, the, the case for actually allowing this country to claim the credits that... It gets from exporting natural gas to a country that is presently burning coal and thereby saving carbon emissions. I mean, the the logic is supreme. It's it's a wonderful idea. It's recognized as such in the Paris Agreement. That's why there's an article in it dealing with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So is this a softening in the federal position? Time will tell, I guess, but uh, it certainly opens the possibility. They're not committed to anything yet. This is an official, this is just a civil servant mm-hmm. saying this. Sean, uh, how big a deal is this to you? Do you think this is just uh, peon in the government, you know, trying to be nice to you? Or uh, do you think this signals a potential shift in policy? <clears throat> well, I don't think it signals a potential shift in policy in the sense that um, it's something that they can't really walk away from because uh, a lot of Jibo's work, Minister Jabol is uh, on the international front. So dealing with the uh, COP conferences and dealing with the UN and um, doing those uh, kinds of, um, you know, it's uh, he's almost got a diplomatic role. And uh, Article 6 was uh, a major part of, I believe it was COP26 in Scotland. Um, it was agreed to by uh, a lot of company, countries, like 80 or 90 countries. A lot of them were... Uh, countries that would have had no way of uh, reducing emissions to the levels that they would require on their own. And this has always been kind of a policy plank of um, Mr. Jibol's. So um, even though they parsed it pretty carefully, uh, I got the sense that it was something that they just could not say no to. Um, but they, you know, they qualified it with a lot of kickers, which is that uh, the country that would be receiving the LNG would have to agree to essentially hand over those emissions credits that they would generate from burning the LNG to Canada so that they don't get double con- double counted. And uh, these are going to be issues that are going to be coming up at uh, COP28, uh, basically on how this implementation of, uh, there's like nine paragraphs in the clause. So uh, the question of how the implementation of these particular clauses uh, would work, how they would be accounted for, how the credits would be transferred, uh, to what standard uh, are they, you know, there has to be like engineering standards and, and technical 
kind of standards and all that uh, as well. So, um, and he was also careful to say that uh, they are not specific to any one technology. So, uh, you know, they, they, the government of Canada supports it broadly in general, but they didn't go so far as to say that they actually support the export mm. of LNG specifically. Okay, well, we're going to have to... Well, I guess we're going to have to wait for that. I don't have my hopes up terribly high, but who knows? Governments have changed their minds before. Um, Sean, we're going to keep you around. Uh, you have another story. Uh, out. Of course, it's you because you're, you know, as our business reporter here. Uh, TD Bank saying that uh, Canada's standard of living is falling fast. Uh, projected to be dead last in the OECD by 2060. Um no, I don't think that was uh, the lowest standard of living in the OECD, if I'm reading it correctly. That was lowest growth in GDP uh, per capita relating to, uh, to standard of living. Uh, am I getting that right? Yeah. Yeah, you are. So um, basically the gist of the report was is that um, GDP growth is growing and uh, Canada has recovered uh, remarkably well since the end of the pandemic. But um, a lot of that is due to uh, high levels of immigration. So what's happening is that even though the economy is growing, it's actually kind of growing at a slower pace when you factor in uh, the headcount. So they come up with this number GDP per capita. And on that basis, uh, Canada is trailing pretty much everybody in the G7, uh, the G20, and especially the United States. And uh, yeah, the bottom line conclusion was is that uh, GDP per capita is going to be the lowest in the OECD, which I believe is about uh, 37 nations. And those those would basically be the developed economies in the world. You know, uh, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure if it was just the Wall Street Journal, if the Wall Street Journal was quoting someone, but they said, uh, you know, Canada's uh, utter lack of commitment to sp uh, military spending and defense in NATO uh, should get us uh, kicked out of the G7 to be replaced by Poland, because Poland plays a bigger role. They spend more than twice as much as us on a per capita level on defense. And now even with standard of living falling, God, can you imagine a world where Poland is a wealthier, more prosperous place? Poland, for God's sakes. They eat beets. Where Poland is leading Canada uh, in uh, standard of living, it's 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 hard to fathom, but I suppose this is where the numbers are pointing, and a lot of things can happen in the meantime. Uh, uh, events always seem to. Let's not pick on the polls. The polls have had a tough life, and they fought valiantly for as long as they could during the Second World War, and then they resisted communism and finally kicked the communists out in the late eighties. They do, if they are doing well, they deserve to. But if a former communist, is, if a former communist state that was poor even before communism yeah. could potentially overtake us, then well, I mean, like we're doing something wrong. We are doing something wrong, and the first the first thing that's wrong is that the government that we have now doesn't value the military. It does not, at least for any military capabilities that it has or ought to have. They don't respect the history. They just regard it as a place where they can experiment with social engineering. I mean, they're letting people come to uh, come to work without the regulation haircut. And if you want to dress in a strange way, well, that's all right, too. This is not, under the Liberals, 
the military is not serious about being soldiers. There's some although we're, we're, we're serious about something else. But we're going to focus back on Senator Vlivic now. Well, okay, let's let, then. So therefore, a country that has had the difficulties of Poland gets very realistic about what matters and what doesn't. And this country has had it so easy for so long that it, apparently we find it easy to major on the minors and we don't pay attention to the stuff that really matters. And that's why there's lots of countries who, like Poland, are doing a lot better than Canada because they pay attention to the real thing. Uh, Corey, there's a lot of hard evidence now pointing towards uh, unsustainable levels of immigration contributing towards this. Canadians are broadly pretty pro-immigration, but there are stress levels that accompany it. You can... Uh, you know, we've seen you know, what happens in Europe where you just have trouble assimilating people if it if it's constitutes too high a percentage of the population coming in. You have to have a percentage that can be assimilated in a reasonable amount of time. There's also the economic constraints, uh, strains on your welfare, strains on your health care, because often, it, it you know, some immigrants get successful pretty quickly, but often it's the second or third generation before they're a net contributor to the tax base. But there, then there's housing. And that is an immediate crisis. We've, you know, the, the, the housing crisis in Canada is, well, there's a lot of reasons for it, but one is these massive record levels of immigration now um, that's creating a housing crisis, even in mid-sized cities in Canada, um, which is contributing now, I think, towards, uh, in a very real way, towards uh, the standard of living uh, issues that we're facing. Um, do you think there's a political appetite for reducing immigration in Canada? Because Canadians in polls are pretty consistently pro-immigration. Not everybody, obviously, but majorities, clear majorities are, and there's multi-party consensus. It could be some appetite to reduce it a bit because the economic case is looking that way. But due to the pyramid scheme nature of Canada and our social programs, we got to keep hauling them in to pay for our older generations that are in. What we're doing, though, is everything wrong. We're so resource-rich. We are loaded with an abundance of raw resources, and we're shutting them in. We've got a government obsessed with shutting down our most productive industries, whether it's forestry, oil, gas, mining, agriculture, and dumping money into battery plants that nobody bloody wants. This sounds like so, the media. So, yes, exactly. They're going to dump money so, into the, to the guys losing, you know, and they're going to do their best to kill the guys winning. So sustainability, you know, a term they love using, they won't apply it to economics, and we are going down a terribly bad road. As Nigel says, Poland understands what's important and what isn't, and they aren't going to shut down their prime industries and go into some woke garbage. And that's what we're doing here. And uh, yeah, we've got a time bomb economically right now, and, and it's showing. We're starting to see the warnings right now. It's just whether people are going to pay heed to it. Uh, last word to you, Sean. Well, the report was uh, pretty clear that uh, economic growth doesn't necessarily translate into standard of living. And as uh, far as immigration goes, I think um, it comes back into that uh, immigrant integration question, not so much uh, socially, but economically. Um, you have a lot of uh, overqualified people working in underqualified jobs, and uh, it's just not generating the value uh, that should be there, um, you know, per head in terms of um, productivity and, and how best to take advantage of this resource. All right. Thank you, Sean. Well, we're going to wrap you. it up there. Uh, before we go, though, I want to make a special appeal to you. Uh, you probably heard us ranting about Bill C-18. This is 
the latest attempt by the federal government to prop up the dead or dying legacy media and control the rest of the media. This is going to have the Western Standard completely cut off of Facebook any day now uh, and very possibly cut off of Google. It's going to be very difficult for you to reach us. Um, it's critical that you sign up as, we hope, a member, but at the very least, just sign up for our free email newsletter. Go to westernstandard.news, sign up at the very least for the newsletter. We hope you become a member and contribute to what we're doing. The Western Standard has refused to date to take the media bailout. Now the federal government's passed C-18, knowing what it's going to do, and they're promising new bailouts for the media if uh, Facebook and Google follow through on their threats uh, to kick us off, because they don't want to pay us for doing us a favor here. Um, so we need you to become a member and support our work. If you, if we don't have the membership base necessary or the advertising base necessary, we'll, we're left with the options of either closing down or taking government money. I would rather just grow with you. So please go to westernstetter.news, sign up for the newsletter. Uh, and if you can become a member, it's only $10 a month or $100 a year. And uh, while I know money's tight for a lot of folks, it's a lot cheaper in the long run than having to rely on the CBC. Thank you very much for joining me. And God bless. The current Lethbridge feed grain prices are as follows. Cash barley is steady at 435. Feed wheat is also steady at 420. And corn is up $5 at $401 per ton. In the milling wheat markets, September Minneapolis futures jumped 59 cents at 730, with local hard red spring bid for July movement at $10.50 per bushel. In the oil seeds nearby canola futures increased $18 at $851.40 per ton, with delivered values for August movement at $19.53 per bushel. In the pulse markets, nearby red lentil prices are trading at $0.34 cents per pound, and yellow peas remain at $11.50 per bushel. In the cattle markets, August live cattle are lower $0.57.5 cents at $180.70 per hundredweight. I'm David Lee at Marketplace Commodities, accurate real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association, without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines uh, helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada, and more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. You become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny. You can become a Western Standard member for just $10 a month or $99 a year for unlimited access.